Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this week is all about the brain. My guest today holds a PhD in neuroscience from the Graduate School of Cellular and Molecular Neuroscience and also an international diploma from the University of California, Berkeley. Henning Beck is an author, speaker, and neuroscientist based in Frankfurt, Germany. His latest book, Scatterbrain, is out now through Greystone Books. It looks at what the faults, or what could be perceived as the faults of the brain, are actually what makes it special. Here's his story. Exactly. A schedule is pretty packed, but it's a lot of fun. And Toronto is a great city. I've, the first time for me being in Canada and Toronto, and yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. Very good. Well, welcome. Henning, why don't we start with this? What interests you about the brain? Well, I think the brain is the last and greatest mystery in science, isn't it? I mean, we, we study the brain, or we have been studying the brain for so long, and still it is it is a mystery. It is an enigma. You open the brain and you have no idea how on earth um, this system is creating ideas, thoughts, memories, emotions, and this is really triggering uh, something. This is really this is really triggering my curiosity, actually. Yeah. You were initially a biochemist, right? That's what you started your studies into. How did you even get into this realm of of studying the brain? Well, even when I studied biochemistry, I was always interested in how the brain works. I started from, from a molecular perspective, or from a cell biological perspective, and then it turned out that um, the brain is not or cannot be described by one single approach. I mean, it is not it is not like a brain researcher will step in front of the audience telling the people how the brain actually works. It is, it is a very interdisciplinary. It is about um, bringing different perspectives together, psychology, informatics, biochemistry, cell biology, anatomy, medicine, and this is giving you the full picture. So any any one of those pictures can't do the whole thing justice, is that it? I'm pretty sure that this won't happen anytime because <laughs> um, the brain is so so complex by definition, actually. It is a complex system, a nonlinear system, that biology will come to an end eventually. I, I don't think that biology is sufficient to explain how the brain works. I mean, informatics it's called informatics for a reason because um, it deals with uh, information and informational processing. Mathematics, uh, especially important when you want to describe how neuronal networks process information on a dynamic level. And so I think it's yeah, it's the combination of different disciplines that is uh, giving you uh, the best approach. I know I've heard the number before or something to this effect that the brain has, you know, in, in the realm of 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion synapses. Uh, mm. And uh, I don't know how to properly visualize something like that, but but it gives a good <laughs> sense as to how complex it is. Yeah, exactly. And if you calculate the possibilities of activity patterns, this system can um, can come up with in a very single moment, you end up in a number around 10 to the power of 280 trillion. And this is not possible to imagine this number. I mean, they're around 10 to the power of 300 or 500 atoms in the universe. This is ridiculous compared to the possibilities. We are able to come up with new activity patterns, um, new ways of processing information. And this number is even multiplied by the different possibilities to combine different activity states. So 
there is the number of ideas you can come up with is almost infinite. Yeah, this is a this is a good sign, I think. <laughs> Before we get into talking about your new book, which is out, Scatterbrain, uh, maybe it would be helpful first to just get a bit of a sense of of who you are, where you come from. Uh, can you give me a bit of a, a story to you, who you are, and what uh, what you do in your everyday life? Yeah, um, so I studied biochemistry and uh, neuroscience in Tübingen and Ulm in, in, in Germany. So I am from Germany. Um, then I was in Berkeley for one year, and then I returned to, uh, to Germany and Frankfurt. And um, so we are interested in our research, how the brain actually learns and understands, how we give rise to new ideas. And in my other life, or let's say in, in other parts of my life, I'm writing books, for instance, and explain how the brain basically thinks. Yeah. So in this book that you've got out now, Scatterbrain, or at least that's the English title, it looks at how the things we might see as flaws in the brain are actually key to why it works. I mean, what was the, the spark or inspiration behind this book? I remember myself going on uh, on a trip with my class when I was a student. I was like 17 years old. And my teacher told me when we were, we were sitting in the train and going somewhere, and he told me, Henning, um, you know, it's the mistake that we do, the mistakes in thinking um, that distinguishes us from non-creative machines. And this really triggered something in me. I said, okay, what if the flaws and mistakes we do are actually a good actually a good thing? I mean, the brain had millions of years to evolve. Still, it is not perfect. Maybe that's for a reason. Maybe this is giving us some, some, some cognitive edge towards uh, machines that work flawlessly and perfectly, but are not able to come up with good ideas and new, new perspectives. Maybe making mistakes and learning from that, this is, how we, this is how we change our perspectives. This is how we challenge ourselves and how we get a good ideas. And this, is, this was really the, the start of the, of the book, like, like 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. So if this is the, the thesis that you're going into the book with or what you're trying to prove and, and test out, just how convinced were you by, by the end of, uh, of that being the case, that mistakes, I mean, maybe, maybe for better and worse, uh, maybe mistakes are at <laughs> times you know, frustrating, sure, but, but that, that they also do uh, provide benefits to us. Yeah, because this is science. Science is about making mistakes and learning from that. And there is no scientist on Earth that has one plan and basically follows his or her master plan and thereby getting to yeah a new piece or a new understanding of science. Um, science is always about making mistakes and trying to ask questions. So I was pretty sure that the key to our creativity and doing something new is that you dare to make mistakes. And um, on the other hand, if you look at perf all, the, all the claims out there, how to become a better thinker or how to think more efficiently, basically that's, that's if you want to behave like machines, if you want to behave like algorithms or artificial intelligence that is working very efficiently but is not creative at all. So uh, I was pretty sure that, um, that making mistakes is a good thing, but not all mistakes are good, of course. I mean, if you want to drive a car, you should follow the rules, of course. If you want to build a car, you should follow the rules. But if you want to invent a new car, some new kind of mobility vehicle in the future, you have to be able to ask questions and go places where nobody has ever been before. And this requires 
that eventually you will fall down, but it is way more important to stand up again. And this is why I appreciate failure or making mistakes, not because making mistakes is a good thing, but learning from that and becoming better is is the best approach to, uh, to, cha- to change the world, actually. Hmm. One of the areas I find most interesting in your book, you delve into memory and figuring out why we remember some things but can forget so much as well. In the book, you write about how memories are constantly changing. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, a memory is nothing you find in the brain. I mean, no matter how deeply you look into the brain, you will never find a memory. Memories are always constructed in the very moment when you remember something, like an orchestra. If you look at an orchestra from outside, you have no idea what kind of music this orchestra is able to play, like the brain. If you look at the brain, you have no idea what uh, what memories this uh, brain is able to come up with. And just like in an orchestra, the music is created in the very moment when the musicians start to play with each other, a memory is created at the very moment when the neurons start to interact with each other. And that's why every memory is kind of distorted, is kind of yeah incorrect because you always highlight something, you always erase some something, you always uh, distort something, you forget stuff, and this is um, this is on the one hand a bad thing because memories are never accurate 100%, but on the other hand, the same brain regions that distort memories are the same brain regions that ask questions like what if, like set up uh, new hypotheses planning the future. And here you see in a nutshell that making mistakes is a double-edged sword. It has disadvantages and advantages too. So I think there's a tendency when thinking about memory, we often want to maybe use a file cabinet analogy. We're yeah. picturing these sorts of you know storage compartments in the brain, but that's, but that's not really not, really not the case at all. Forget that totally. I mean, the brain is not a computer. The brain is not like a library. The brain is a bit more like an orchestra, very hard to control without without a conductor. And it's very hard to, to, to control. It is nonlinear, it is complex, but on the other hand, it is very dynamic. And a thought, a memory, emotions, they are not located anywhere. They are not stored anywhere in the brain. It is always how the brain cells interact in a very specific moment. And this is giving you great advantages when it comes to create new stuff and asking questions and challenging yourself because otherwise you would just be as unimaginative as a machine. Nowadays, and granted this isn't true for everyone, but our culture is very much one of constant intake. You know, you wake up and you're checking your phone, maybe you're reading the paper or listening to the news. Yeah. You're checking emails and Twitter and Facebook or, or and on and on and on. Yeah. It seems like there's less and less space in the course of a day when we're not intaking some kind of information. Yes. Um, But what does that do to our ability to retain anything? (laughs) Yeah, um, the more information you consume, the harder it is to uh, prioritize them. And it is very more important to find out what what is important and what is not important in order to understand what you are actually doing. Same with nutrition. If you eat something, you have to digest the food. Otherwise, you're going to explode if you eat constantly. And same with information. If you constantly consume information, you're going to explode. And we don't call that explosion. We call that that, you are, that you're feeling under pressure, that you're feeling the time seems to fly, that you feel under stress, and you feel um, that you forget stuff. And all these classic feelings of non-perfectionism are only re- the result of the fact that you don't digest information. So it's important to, yeah, to, to 
to have periods throughout the day where you're not checking your phone, maybe during sports or uh, cooking or playing music or whatever, but have some free time in order to digest information. Well, that was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me is learning the value of that free time because it's it's in that free time that mm. the brain is actually processing. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, actually, yeah. If you ask people, where do you get a good idea? No one says, okay, when I'm on my phone, when I'm in a meeting room, when I'm at my desktop. Usually it's like, um, when you're under the shower, vacuum cleaning their apartment, during sports, driving a car, and always these periods of time when you're not actively thinking or actively concentrating on a specific problem, you seem your mind seems to go away, drifting off, and this is what we call daydreaming or mind wandering. And this is super important because otherwise you cannot get a good idea. You are so hooked up by all the informational input, by all these devices that are designed to catch your your attention, and that it's very hard to get new perspectives. Some of this, I think, is, well, much of this, I think, is interlinked with other things, because I think part of what this kind of on, constant intake of information comes down to is that we have eliminated spaces in our life for being bored, or maybe just, you know, feeling awkward or uncomfortable yeah. you know if you're waiting for the bus or the train or you're waiting for friends to show up at a restaurant or waiting to yeah. see the doctor you know first thing that comes out is the phone uh yeah. how hard is it for us to just sit and accept boredom or or kind of stillness <laughs> super hard i mean uh we hate that including myself i mean if i'm sitting there i hate just being in this idle mode of doing nothing and um, it is important that um, maybe you should reframe the term boredom. I mean, boredom has a very bad reputation for a reason because it's not fun to be bored. We hate that. It is you can measure in the brain that is physically painful to be in a in a to be in boredom or in a state of boredom. So what if you reframe that and say, okay, I I just I just detach myself from all these uh, kind of media, all these smartphone devices and apps, and maybe maybe during sports or um, or playing music or having a hobby that seems to be boring from outside. But usually if you ask people, um, they say they feel kind of relieved of that informational overkill through, throughout the day by doing something something very simple, something, um, something routine-like stuff. And this is really clearing your mind and thereby you're able to, to understand actually what you are doing because it's not, not important that you remember everything. It is important that we understand it. I mean, I don't remember the, my sister's phone number, but I, but I know when I have to call her. And that basic difference between information and knowledge is very important. You only get to this point if you do breaks, if you are bored from time to time, or let's say to be kissed by a muse when you let your mind go. Hmm. One of the great examples you give from the book, there was this study where people were given the option of sitting and doing nothing or else giving themselves an electric shock as, as yeah. option B. And almost half of them went for the electric shock. Yeah. Uh, can, can you tell me a bit about that study, what you remember from, from reading and researching that? Yeah, that was an awkward study, actually. Interestingly, uh, men were uh, more likely to use electric shocks or to, to, uh, to apply electric shocks to themselves than women, which was also very interesting. Um, but on the other hand, here you see that it is really painful um, when you are forced to do nothing. And um, because we are constantly curious for new information. I mean, this is the strongest 
drive that we have. Um, have that new information coming in and trying to find something new. And all the other drives, you can tear them down or ignore them uh, for a period of time, but not with curiosity. And here you see that people rather choose to do something very unpleasant in order to avoid that state of idleness or, or being bored um, because, because curiosity, you don't know whether this electric shocker is working or not, but this curiosity drives you to just to give it a try. And um, this, this just proves that we, are, that we are informational seekers, that we are trying to find something new. And yeah, this is why smartphones work so well, right? Apps are designed mm. in a way to, to be addictive, yeah. You've talked about this a little bit already, but what do we lose when we're on our phones instead of just sitting in that idleness or discomfort? Mm. And not necessarily socially, what do we lose, mm. but in terms of what the brain could otherwise be doing with that time? Yeah, um, so one thing I, I already mentioned is that you're basically um, always focused on something, so it's hard to let your mind um, drift away and get a new perspective. The other thing is that you're constantly bombarded with uh, correlations. You constantly get what um, is supposed to fit you. I mean, Facebook, um, Google, Amazon is constantly showing you something that is most likely um, that that you most likely uh, like. So it's very hard to get outside of this uh, correlation chamber or this echo chamber in order to get a good ideas. And you know, we know that it is hard for people to prioritize, to find out what is important, to challenge their beliefs if they are they are constantly presented with uh, information that uh, that most likely fits their opinions. So it's very hard for them to to step into a different perspective then. One of the terms that you reference in the book, uh, one of the parts of the brain or states of the brain, I should say, is the default mode network. Yeah. Uh, just what is that exactly and, and how is it relevant to how the brain works? Yeah, this is an interesting network. Actually, it comprises different areas of the brain that are always active when you're doing nothing. So when you're just sitting there and do nothing, you will realize that you're that mentally you create new thoughts or um, new kind of you know, daydreams and, and such. And this is because this uh, default mode network is active and basically creating creating new ideas. On the other hand, this is the same network that is active um, or this is giving you this feeling of pain when you are doing nothing, when you are bored, um, you, you feel that, that, um, that pain actually, um, which, which is also um, created by this network. So it's, again, it is double-edged. The same network that is giving you pain during boredom is the same network that is able to give you new perspectives, that is able to let you ask what if questions, setting up hypotheses, thinking about yourself, getting into the other one's shoes. And this is important because otherwise you're so um, narrow-minded and never able to, to challenge yourself. So it seems like creativity or new thoughts, new ideas go hand in hand with a bit of, or maybe more than a bit of discomfort at times. Oh yeah, a happy people don't change the world because if you're happy, there's no need for change, right? You should keep everything as it is. On the other hand, if you have a problem, Dig into the problem. Every good idea starts with pain, if you want. Dig into the problem um, to realize what you want, what you, um, what you don't want, and then step back. And this is critical because if you're always focusing on the problem and never detaching um, from it and never going somewhere else, you will never find a good solution. And then step back from a problem, do something unrelated, some routine, automated routine stuff, 
riding riding a bike or like playing music or whatever whatever is fun to you and suddenly you will realize a good idea will hit you because you had you were uploaded with all the the problems and all the information and then if you detach um, ideas will hit you this is why uh, for instance people find you know some people find ideas come in the shower or, or doing exactly. uh, the routine actions right exactly yeah uh, one of the one of the parts of the book that you write about, you devote a section to distraction and yeah. why why the mind is so easily distracted. Uh, why are we so prone to distraction? Because we are always looking for something new, and this was um, always very important to exactly ask questions and find new perspectives that no one else had. I mean, good ideas don't come when you're always thinking inside the box. So there's the reason why why we are prone to to new information and new yeah, sensory input because it's um, giving us the possibility to, to rethink problems. On the other hand, this system can easily be hijacked by, by like smartphone apps or devices or social media and such, which is basically um, using that principle that we are always looking for something new, um, giving us a lot, of, a lot of new stuff and thereby we are basically losing ourselves in, in, in binge watching or uh, checking out YouTube, Snapchat, um, um, Twitter, whatsoever, whatever. And so it's very important that you know that from time to time it is necessary to be constant in a concentrated mode, um, not being distracted by phones and then being distracted on purpose, as I say. Just let um, use free time and um, sports or other possibilities um, in order to detach yourself from a problem. So it's a form of... Uh... Using, using distraction in an intentional way. Exactly. If you say, if you are focusing on something and then something is um, like a phone is buzzing or, or an app is ringing, it is, you are losing concentration and focus. And this is not a good thing. Um, if you say, okay, I work on something, I work on a problem, and then I do a break. Um, usually we say um, a ratio of one to five is good. Five times of work. So for example, 50 minutes of work and then 10 minutes break. And then if you do a break on purpose, distract yourself on purpose, then you get good ideas during that kind of break. One thing in the book that I found fascinating, you say that uh, creative people are more easily distracted. Is there a reason behind that? <laughs> well, it seems like the brain of creative people is more easily distracted because they are more curious and they are more looking for different options and different possibilities to tackle a certain problem. Hmm. So they are can be easily distracted, but on the other hand, they are way better to find new perspectives and new points of views. Yeah. Uh, I find that just particularly relevant uh, probably to anybody who's ever undertaken trying to, you know, write creatively, uh, just how easily <laughs> yeah. distraction comes. I'm sure you writing a book <laughs> and several yeah. books uh, would would be able to relate to that. Uh, yeah, exactly. I have never I have never written a single chapter of this book when I was at my desktop and sitting in front of the, of the computer. I always wrote it mentally when I was on my bike uh, or doing something else, sitting 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 in a car. Um, because at this very mo at this very moment, you create a picture or an image of that of what you want to write. You create a pattern, and as soon as you got this, you can sit down and start writing. And this is always the case. Solutions for problems come to you if you attract them by stepping back from a problem. And sometimes you have to dare this kind of thinking because it does not seem very um, very efficiently, but it is very effective. Right. Hmm. 
I found this part surprising because when I write, I'm very noise averse. I know other people are different, yeah. but you yeah. mentioned that there's some science behind a yeah. certain level of noise for yeah. sparking creativity. What's going on there? Yeah, some people um, are sitting in a cafe um, when they when they're writing something or trying to solve problems or re rethinking because it seems for those kind of people it is it is necessary to have that kind of yeah, imaginative in or. Um, inspiring environment that they have the possibility um, to focus on a problem and then um, look somewhere else and suddenly they see something and then incorporate this kind of new sensory input whatever it is and thereby um, getting to a better solution I'm like you I mean I, I usually I like a very quiet uh, surrounding in order to focus on something but then I go out and yeah, I, I talk to someone else or I see something uh, on the TV or whatever. And then I get a good idea when I'm in the, in the silence again. Hmm. Uh, there's actually, you, you wrote about a, an optimal creative volume as like 70 decibels. <laughs> which is, yeah. uh, so, so there's obviously a research that's gone into that. Yeah, exactly. If you check when people, uh, what kind of noise environment is, is, is best for people, um, usually, if it's too loud, okay, it's not good because you're distracted. If it's too, um, if it's too quiet, some people also feel kind of dis some kind of discomfort when it's too quiet. So um, sometimes, sometimes something in the middle is quite good. So 60 decibels or like 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 a slightly noisy room can be good. But this is also very personal. I mean, mm. everybody has to find out what fits best for for his or her way of thinking. I mean, you will always find people that need a noisy room, always find people who need a quiet room. But usually, if you go into that specific personal individual environment, this is really triggering good ideas then, yeah. This is on a different tangent, but I was interested to read about biases. You know, it's, it's yeah. hard for us to change our minds about something and, and also very hard for us to change someone else's mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Why is that? Um, because we like being confirmed, the, um, we, we are looking for information that um, in order to verify our beliefs, not to challenge them. And this is because we, our brain always tries to avoid insecurity and always tries to avoid um, contradiction. And that's why we are looking for, for information that confirms what we are already thinking. And this is why all the business models of the most valuable companies in the world right now uh, are working. I mean, they are presenting you something that should verify or confirm your beliefs and confirm your, your basically your, your choices what to buy. And on the other hand, when you do challenge yourself, you will get to places um, you could not have, have imagined before. And this is actually what computers don't do. Computers are always correlating. And when you check out how computers, let's say, think or work, you see where this ends in, um, in, non, in a non-creative state. So it's very important to challenge yourself, ask questions. Like Abraham Lincoln said, I don't like this man. I have to get to know him better. And this is a good approach to, um, yeah, to, to get a good ideas, actually, new perspectives. Uh, that computer comparison is a helpful one because I think that is a tendency of ours to want to compare ourselves to, you know, the uh, a perfect memory of things, a perfect uh, ability to, well, do things without making mistakes, uh, mm. uh, a perfect ability to constantly choose the rational option, yeah. uh, but, yeah. but that's maybe, uh, you know, not in keeping with how the brain works and how it ought to work. Exactly. And this is not how we should behave. I mean, we require nowadays 
um, that people should behave like a machine. We say focus, concentrate, don't make mistakes, head down and deliver. So it's, but it is way more important that you are able to ask questions, um, that you try something, um, fail, stand up again, learn from your failure. I mean, my neighbor is learning how to ride a bike right now. He's like five years old. And he's not doing a biomechanic master plan how to ride a bike perfectly within the next five years. No, he's jumping on his bike. He will crash eventually. I'm a road biker. I know how this feels. But I know that this is the right approach. Standing up again, checking what went wrong, and make it better the next time. And this is why we crossed uh, the oceans, discovered new countries, get to good ideas. Not because we have the perfect plan and work perfectly, but we are trying stuff. We are asking others. Um, and thereby we are learning and improving. And this is how we change the world, not by not by thinking like machines, right? Back to biases for a moment. Uh, why are conspiracy theories so enticing to us? <laughs> oh, there are a lot of different reasons. One, one reason is um, what we call in psychology um, the bias of root simplicity. So we are always looking for the, um, for the simplest explanation. And if you look at conspiracy, conspiration theories, they always give you one single explanation for everything. Mm. And we know from studies that people really appreciate that kind of thinking because it makes things very simple. On the other hand, what we also know, um, if you are in the, uh, in a universe of conspiration theory, I don't know what kind of weird theory it is, but you have a lot of people um, that confirming each other. You have a strong society and this kind of social bonding helps you um, um, to overcome this kind of discomfort um, when you are um, seeing something new or don't know how to, to, to explain something. You're in a society that helps you to confirm your beliefs. And again, this is again about this confirmation bias that it is very, very easy and very, um, very positive for us to, to see sing things in a simple way and explain it as um, we want them to be. As you were writing this book, uh, Scatterbrain, what, what was something or the, whether that was something the most jumped out to you or, or just something in particular that, that lingers now in your memory, uh, something that you learned in the process of, of writing this book about the brain that you found particularly memorable? <laughs> One thing was actually that I, uh, when, when I studied the research about how we make mistakes, uh, one thing that was very interesting to me is um, that there's no brain region that is uh, basically active when we are doing mistakes that regarding fear. So we are, we are not initially afraid of making a mistake. I mean, we do mistakes constantly. Um, we do typos. I don't know how many, uh, how many times I, I, I spoke in a wrong way during that interview. We are doing mistakes all the time, but a lot of brain regions are active, but one is missing, uh, the region that is controlling fear. We are not afraid of making mistakes. And this is, I think, a very positive, positive attitude that we are trying new stuff and thereby, um, thereby we are changing it. And no child is afraid of starting to speak. Uh, no one is afraid of starting new stuff because um, otherwise we would be still sitting in, in Africa and would not have discovered the world um, because this is what drives um, human mankind. Um, trying stuff, learning from it, standing up again, and seeing that basically kind of um, inbuilt, if you want, or by it being represented in the way the brain works, this was really this was really fascinating to me. I know in science there's often talk of kind of you can look you can look at the known unknown and the unknown unknowns. Yeah. 
Uh, as it relates to your research and, and what you are interested in the brain, what's, what's the biggest, you know, known unknown, the thing that uh, <laughs> thing has yet to be figured out? Yeah. As I said, we have no idea how the brain is actually able to come up with what we call a thought or memory or, or such. We know that there must be mathematical principles that guide the dynamics of how neurons interact with each other, but we have no clue what these mathematical principles are. And I think this is the holy grail of neuroscience in the future, that we need informatics, mathematics, in order to explain and find theories, hypotheses, mathematical models that can apply to this neuronal dynamics. And by the way, if you know these kind of dynamics and these kind of models, you could apply these um, to, to artificial intelligence and machines. And maybe you can create way more powerful the machines than what we do right now, because what I see right now is not artificial intelligence. I mean, computers are just as dumb as 50 years ago, but today they are dumb in a faster way, right? Mm. They still don't understand what they are actually calculating. They are just do pattern recognition. Um, and this is, this is really, really sad because the brain has so many different possibilities to, to deal with information and to find out what this is. I mean, this, this would be so fascinating. This, I think, would be one of the greatest discoveries in science ever. Wow. <laughs> that, does, uh, that does sound promising. Uh, yeah. I don't know. know whether this is going to, going to happen, right? right? I don't know whether this is going to happen within the next 50 years. Maybe it's 100 years. Maybe it's 500 years. We don't know. But we know there must be some kind of principle that guides how neurons interact with each other. Maybe it is too complicated for, for the technology we have right now, but... But I'm still optimistic that uh, eventually, sometimes down the line, people will be able to, to, to find out what is going on actually in the brain. Right? Mm. One of the things that we talk about more and more through the years, I think there's a kind of a rising, well, awareness and fear at times of what automation will do to the yeah. future of our kind of working lives. Uh, what's the greatest advantage that the brain still holds? So uh, a couple of things. First, um, we are able to overcome our beliefs as hard as it is. Um, we are still able to ask questions in order to challenge ourselves. Um, and thereby we get a good ideas, not by finding correlations. Second, um, we can um, interact with each other. So um, we can ask other people. So we incorporate others' ideas. And, and this is also important for, for a creativity and innovation because um, it's not upon um, or it's not up to um, the scientist or the, the engineer whether an idea will succeed or not, but it's about um, the people who decide whether an idea is a good one or not. So it's, it's a social construct. Um, and third, I think um, the best way to, to overcome your beliefs and what, what you think is having fun, because this uh, in when you're making a joke. Um, this is always very interesting because people have expectations and then they break with their expectations. And we love that. Mm. We love change. We love when things turn out differently. And this is when we start to love. And um, I think this is a very positive way of changing the world, not by trying to work perfectly and uh, intelligently, but um, trying to, to try out new stuff together with others. Yeah. Just finally, uh, how has this book and, and writing this book and researching these things, how has it changed uh, your own life, the way you think about uh, mistakes or the way that you do things? <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually, uh, what 
it changed in a way that I, I'm not really uh, so harsh to myself. I'm not really, because usually I, I'm also very trying to avoid mistakes, mm. trying to work perfectly. Of course, I want to write a perfect book. But after I've written it, I was more like, okay, it's more about giving it a try and see how it works. Of course, don't make a mistake twice. Learn from your mistakes. Uh, make plans, of course. Um, but it is better done than perfect. Do it, doing it is way more important than doing it perfectly. And this is, this is a general advice I can give to, to, to everybody that, um, that trying out new stuff and um, challenge yourself, uh, this, is, this is one of the best approaches to be way smarter than, than computers. Computers are intelligent, right? But intelligence is nothing special. Intelligence just means that you follow the rules as efficient as possible. It doesn't mean changing rules. It doesn't mean going places where nobody has ever been before. And after I wrote this book, I was way more optimistic that we will not be replaced by artificial intelligence uh, because uh, human beings have this cognitive edge. This is what we call making mistakes. Yeah. Mm. That is uh, good news indeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Henning, thank you very much for your time. All the best. Likewise. Thanks a lot. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating, and review. It helps other people find the show. And even better, tell someone else you think might like it. If you liked this episode, if you haven't gone back in the catalog before, episode 9, one of the very first, Adrian Owen is a guest. He is the leading cognitive neuroscientist at Western University and has been looking at determining consciousness in patients who are in a vegetative state. Really fascinating work. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.